0: Well, hi everyone and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm really excited about this show because I am a firm believer of preparing for end of life and to try to get this conversation out in the world so people aren't so afraid. But before I introduce our guest, I just again want to welcome you all to the show and if you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call and it was um performed and um Written by the Mark Arneson Band here in Minnesota, which I just love. And you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have a real conversation. So we're going to talk for an hour with our guests and we we talk to people all around the world big and small from those living with a form of dementia to family members uh, to professionals to researchers um, businesses authors movie directors singers songwriters everyone is welcome here i think the more we can have uh, conversation the more we can learn the more we can give hope and be inspired uh, to all live well alongside this disease now, I do wanna give a couple of shout outs and one is to Arthur's Memory Cafe. Arthur's Senior Care sponsors this and we get together virtually the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month at uh, one o'clock central time. So that would be two o'clock uh, Eastern time. And uh, also we have an in-person um, meeting for what we call Caregiver Connect. It is sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks and we meet the last Wednesday of each month at 10 a.m. at the Shoreview Parks and Rec uh, Community Center. and you can find more information about those uh, by going to alzheimerspeaks.com or feel free to email me as well at uh, radio at Alzheimer's Speaks. Now, I also want to share with you that you can now join a really important Alzheimer's disease research project in minutes from your home, and it's called Picnic Health. And all they have to do is go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks, and you can sign up and you'll get $25 just for doing that. What Picnic Health does is they collect and they digitize all of your medical records into one online account. And then with your consent, they share that amount of monetized um, data of your records with medical researchers. And you see by examining this real-life data from from people's medical records, researchers can find answers that they couldn't find in clinical trials. So it's really important Um that people participate in this because everybody's journey is unique so feel free to share your story again you can go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and if you care for someone with dementia um, or alzheimer's you can go and sign up on their behalf again and you know as long as you manage their medical records and have right to to do so uh, let's see, what else do I want to tell you about Dementia Map? We are really excited. We are growing every single day. Dementia Map is a resource for everything dementia all around the world, um, from big to small. Um, budget is not an issue. There's no fee to access this. It's It has uh, resources in a resource directory, an events calendar, terminology, and a wonderful blog where you can get um, Great information from experts in the industry. We are going to listen to the Footbar Walker, which is absolutely fabulous, and they have a sale going on right now, so you can get this walker for under $200, and it reduces injuries. I, I just love it, but I will let them do the talking.
1: Introducing the life-changing footbar walker.
0: I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The footbar walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000.
1: thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the footbar walker?
0: Do I ever. I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the footbar walker. I I do. I really love that thing. They sent me one out to be able to test it, and it really is quite fabulous and uh, an easy design and uh, no shipping, no nothing right now. You can check them out, actually. Uh, you need to go to the footballwalker.com or head over to Dementia Map and look for them there, and you'll be able to get that discount code. Now, today, I am so thrilled to have um, Wendy Longacre uh, Brown with us, and she is a trained and certified end-of-life doula and a life legacy creator. And some of you might be wondering, what the heck are both of those? Well, we're going to find out today. She provides emotional support, education, and spiritual support, Um she creates these life legacy projects and works with individuals to truly honor their path um, today or at the end of life. So welcome, Wendy. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today.
2: Thank you for having me, Lori. That was a lovely introduction with the music, too. I have to say that was the most spirited. You must like attending rock concerts, or you have a little <laughs> bit of a rockabilly in you, I think.
0: I I like a little bit of everything, actually, so I'm I'm pretty easily pleased when it comes to music. Um, Great. But but again, thank you for for taking time to be with us today. You know, before I kind of get into my line of questions, I always ask everybody if they've been personally touched in their own family or circle of friends by dementia.
2: Um, Yes, I actually have been touched. Um, It started about... 10 years ago, when it was clear that my uncle had some form of dementia, which we watched him deteriorate over about five years, he died um, just about five years ago right now. Um, And then my mother was diagnosed two years, two and a half years ago, um, with dementia as well with Alzheimer's. And Um, she, I'll talk about her a little bit later and how she's deciding to go forward in life with this disease, but, um, it's, it's a very personal, um, disease and the network of support I think is, is so incredibly important to share with this small community and larger community. So thank you for your work in that.
0: Yeah, well, as you know, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years. So I I totally, totally get what a difficult um, route this can be. And and yet there are so many things out there to support people that they don't know about. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have you on the show with us today. So, again, thank you uh, for coming. Why don't we start with what the heck is an end-of-life doula? Because I'm sure a lot of people don't even know anything about, you know, what your role is.
2: Many don't. And the first time I heard about a deaf doula, it was actually from my sister who is a birth doula. Um, So I could translate it fairly quickly to what um, the deaf doula support looks like. But the easiest way to look at it is the end-of-life doula or deaf doula is a non-medical person who provides educational, emotional physical, and or spiritual support to dying people and their caregivers and families. Um, <clears throat> I would say death doulas are comfortable with our own mortality as we're not afraid to talk about death or people who are dying. Uh, being a doula is an active practice and requires intention and focus and energy, um, but we're we're very much, a, a, I'd say, Holding space and a sounding board for families in crisis. Um, one way too to understand what we what we are is, people are often confused. Well, what's the difference between hospice and end of life doulas? And to start, doulas are very supportive uh, regarding hospice. They we do not take place of hospice or palliative care, but we truly only enhance and complement the care for our clients, Um, hospice prescribes medication, a doula does not ever prescribe medication. Um, I'd say, I've seen enough studies that show working with a doula builds confidence towards using hospice earlier than planned because the discussion is open. The sooner the doula can enter the process, the more time that can be spent getting to know the client and the family, create a care plan, prioritize end-of-life needs, and potentially bring in hospice sooner than later, as I said. So a doula's work can begin before hospice is in place, and I think that's one important part. Um, there can be a diagnosis, yet it might not be um, a projected six months before a physician feels as though one may die. So a doula's work can begin earlier and also a doula's present um, a a bit more frequently than hospice, hospice, they have, they play many different roles, but they have limited time because they often have a certain amount of people they're seeing and um, they only can give a certain amount of hours per week to a Mm -hmm. client. Yep. And, and I know hospice
0: has changed a lot. I mean, when my dad died in 2001, they were, um, they were present with the family a lot more than when my mom passed away in uh, mm-hmm. 2014. I mean, it was, it was like night and day. And so mm-hmm. having having that extra support, I think is, is absolutely huge, huge mm-hmm. factor for families and how they cope and, and process mm-hmm. things. Um, now, how the heck did you get into this? Because, you know, so many people are fearful of death to begin with. So, you know, what was your journey to, to
2: land here? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I had a different career in my 20s and 30s and early 40s as a video and film producer and then had my own um, blog all about handwriting. Uh, I've always been a believer of journaling and letter writing. And then I paused busy with three children. And when I was pausing, my, my uncle died from Alzheimer's and then my sister lost a child um, in utero. And I had been comfortable with talking about death all of my life, I assumed uh, my mother and uncle lost their parents in the um, largest plane crash in the world in 1977 in Tenerife, and that was always discussed. It was emotions were were never hidden behind closets. There, it was an open platform. Yet, I found it so interesting that I myself had such a, a lack of knowledge around how to speak about death um, and. I am a bit of a people pleaser in certain extent. So I wouldn't necessarily want to bring up death in a surrounding um, environment where maybe someone, a friend's sister had just lost a child, or I didn't even know how much my sister wanted to talk about it when really all they want to do is talk about it often. So there was this clear need to befriend the conversation about end of life and the options around this time. Also, I, I, Ironically, I took this course um, called "Speaking of Dying," which was based out of Seattle. But um, a friend of mine, Laurel Rydell, who was actually my midwife for my last two children, she is a facilitator to this um, four-session program, and it's this an incredible workshop where you're looking at your healthcare directive and you're thinking of all these um, scenarios that could be surrounding end-of-life end of choices for you, such as who will be my advocate and. What happens if I have unexpected deaths? And it just opened this conversation up wider about the options at the end of life. I had never thought, oh, well, if something happened to me tomorrow, actually, that is not a bad idea to have my body in a wooden casket in my home so my family and friends can grieve in person together and be in in touch with those raw emotions, which really helps the process begin and supportive for the family members. And even if something happened where I was, I was held on to life for just a little bit longer, I would want to be home and not in a hospital. So these, these kind of um, topics came up and I, I knew that there was um, a place for me in death and I just wasn't sure what that was. And um, it was really my sister who said, you know, there are end of life doulas. And right away I thought, huh, that, that is, very interesting to me, and I think that feels very natural for me to go into. So I started researching. Um, there's many different death doula programs out there. I gravitated to Enelda, which is the International End of Life Doula Association. It's I N E L D A. The founder, Henry Fresco Weiss, um, he wrote this incredible book called Caring for Dying. So it be kind of it, it was it was a bit like my my Bible, I found myself highlighting every other line, and then I just thought, well, I, this, is, this is something that is obviously valuable as a resource to myself and other people. And if I don't become a doula, I at least want this knowledge to be able to be there for other people. Um, and a little bit about Henry, he was a hospice volunteer who had noticed that families were not present, really emotionally present at death. And he saw that there was unnecessary hospitalization and just this higher anxiety level and fear. And he had been familiar with birth doulas. So he believed that the philosophy and approach around birth doulas could apply to death. And so that's when he began this ANILDA program. And right away, he noticed that the patient satisfaction went up when a doula was involved, that this, these doulas were really another set of eyes and ears for the family, and um, the staff knows that they will be given important information about patient situations. So there's, it's something where it's another communicator, um, and so I, I thought this, is, this could be something for me. And um, I, as, as far as taking the course, that was I decided to get myself involved in in death, like face-to-face, before I took the training just to make sure I still was comfortable. Um, So I started volunteering with Fairview Hospice and um, Our Lady of Peace and NC Little Hospice, and they're all very different kinds of organizations. Um, But then I knew that I would – obviously, there are moments that I will still – that I haven't been and that will, will throw me, and I'll have to compose myself and dig deep. But um, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't harboring any feelings about death, that I wouldn't be able to be present for others. Uh, so then I took the the course, and uh, they have a fairly rigorous certification. There's many, As I said, there's many different programs. Some you are certified over the weekend. Others take years. So there's not a national certification like birth doulas. So really it kind of comes to the point um, that I – I believe that with each doula, we we bring kind of our own um, element to our services, and so it's really important to, if you're considering working with a doula, to, I would say, most have free consultations just to get to know who they are first on the phone, and then you can have these one-on-ones. Um, some doulas might be more grief-based. Um, I have this legacy component that not as many do, which I'll talk about later, um, there are others that um, use oils and are a little bit more holistic. So, I mean, I, I would say with any doula, they can bring to the, They can they can show up at where their potential client is and be there for them in that space. But there might be some some clients that potentially um, want a doula that has their CNA that are more of a physically active kind of a doula.
0: Hmm.
2: So definitely
0: customized and and different to meet uh, different roles and needs, Um, not only of that of the family, but of the the doula themselves, which I think is really smart. I I just, um, I love the concept of having this extra emotional support. You had mentioned about, you know, this extra set of eyes and ears and, you know, I've done a lot myself with with end of life just just as me Lori, you know not in any official uh capacity but i can't tell you how many times i you know i i've stepped up or stepped in because i've seen things that the rest of the family just they don't see at all right. when it comes to pain and comfort and um just the the little things um because there's you know family members So often are so overwhelmed and they just many of them aren't even ready to accept that this is where they are, you know, in the Mm -hmm. journey and Mm -hmm. they can have Mm -hmm. literally hours to go and they're still in denial. And it's so helpful, so helpful to have that extra set of, of eyes and ears and how much people appreciate that, even if they don't in the moment because they're just not taking it all in what's there. Right. Um,
2: but right, afterwards,
0: right. Uh, you know, I know many have, have come to me and I'm sure you hear this all the time of, thank you for being there. Cause I, I just, I wasn't fully present, mm-hmm. you know, to take mm-hmm. it all in. And, well, um, Oh, go ahead.
2: No, I, I think that's such a valid point because I, and it really, it's, it's fascinating when I think of certain families that I've been with for, I'd say maybe the longest that I was meeting with somebody was three months. As far mm-hmm. as I, I've worked with people on their legacies for longer, but as far as as a end of life doula is concerned, um, I recently brought in a client that maybe has a bit longer than that. But on average, unfortunately, it's closer to a few weeks. They they families right at the end they feel oh gosh this is too much for me to handle and there's pro, there's some unresolved issues going on and I can't get a whole, like, uh, ahead of it. Um, and so, we, I would say, you know, in a perfect world, doulas get involved when someone receives a terminal diagnosis and have those conversations early on about what their health, health care directive looks like, um, any tweaks that they would want. So, they just have these open conversations about it. Um, mm-hmm. And what makes life worth living for as your treatment goes on. So it's clear that they are staying in treatment because this is what they are wanting. The loved one is wanting versus what maybe the caregiver is hoping for or what the children are hoping for. Um, it really, and when you have these discussions, it can empower people to make decisions about life the way they want to live at that present moment. And, um, what is on their mind and what's on the caregiver's mind? I mean, it really to start those conversations early on, it it does it it feels like it might be difficult and more painful, which it can be, but in the big picture, it actually makes the end so much more beautiful and um, and graceful. And not that we can't um, change what you know, the wishes are and what the, um, what the individual the, uh, the actively dying will, will be and look like. Cause sometimes we just don't have control, but we have some control, which I'll go into. Um, and, you know, I say this with little trepidation cause I don't try and, I'm not trying to make death neat or pretty, but you really are trying to keep the fear and anxiety out of the process so you can connect to more of the sacred nature of what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're accompanying people on this journey um, into the act of dying, and we're discussing symptoms on the way to make it less scary. Sometimes people have to hear things over and over. You know, they've heard it from their hospice provider or their palliative care support um, staff a few times, but they need to hear it again. Um, and so if we're, if we're there and reminding them of what these changes to the body look, look like, um, that's extremely helpful to both the loved one um, who's dying, and the caregiver. Um, so really, I mean, the sooner the doula can enter into the process, the more time can be spent getting to know the client and family and create this care plan, which I can talk about, and um, prioritize any of the needs that the family is needing. So that's done, and then you can create these sacred spaces and meaning around around the death.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and, you know, um, you, had, you had mentioned
0: um, – You know, is someone getting treatment? Are they getting treatment for themselves or are they doing it because everyone else wants them to? And, oh, my gosh, that is such a struggle. You know, I'm 62 and I've had a lot of friends pass away in the last few years. And the struggles of family and the person who is ill has just been eye-opening to me in terms of not being able to have open conversations about their wishes and, and so often I see families are so fearful of letting go, and yet mm-hmm. it's so painful to watch um, the end of life. A lot of times it's cancer and, and the chemos and radiations, and, you know, they're still doing all of this stuff. And, you know, I, I look back and, you know, not to judge, because every family has to do what, what is right for them. I'm a firm believer in that, but... Um, then the end is i think even more painful because they lost a lot of quality time together and mm-hmm. for me you know i've I've been lucky enough to be um with people when they've passed and it's just such an honor it's it's i guess to the listeners i would say it's it's not even possible for me to describe the honor it has been to be with people when they pass and to Mm -hmm. give them that, that permission to go and just, Mm -hmm. you know, support them on Mm -hmm. their journey, the way they've, they've supported me. And, Mm -hmm. and again, there's such fear wrapped around, you know, the end of life. And yet we all know we're coming in and we're going out, you know, there's no permanent sticker for any of us here And, and so if we can, Make this a more peaceful, calm, appreciative journey, um, mm. and, and really honor our relationships. I,
2: mm. I
0: just I don't think there's anything more beautiful, to be honest with you, other than a birth of a no. child.
2: Right, right. No, I agree, and you know it depends on the scenario. I mean, there are these rituals that can help take some of that fear out of death if a family member or the loved one is still struggling with regrets and unresolved issues, guilt, or shame, Mm -hmm. that um, there are rituals that that can happen after a loved one has passed with the siblings or the spouse, or or we can do something where it happens even before actively dying. So they really can feel like they're a bit more present And that they have said what they needed to say, Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't—it doesn't mean that it always happens. You know, I mean, you know, I like I said in the beginning, I'm I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I I remember my first client pro bono. I had to really learn the hard way that he was going to fight the fact that he um, was dying from brain cancer at a really young age, and that he, until I'd say just a few days before he died. And it was mm-hmm. really only one time after I had met with him a dozen times and recorded messages for his, his sons and his daughter and his wife, um, which were about his values and things that he wanted to be remembered by. But he never directly said, I'm dying. You know, it was always like, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep fighting. You know, I, he never said, I'm going to beat this thing, but he was not willing to give up. And mm-hmm. I just had to let that go, know, um, knowing that you know, he ultimately had to come to a place on his own. Um, so that is part of that first phase, I'd say there's kind of three phases that sometimes doulas look at. And that first phase is about um, empowering the people to make decisions about about life and what they're wanting and to hold this space. Uh, uh, the hope is that we offer sort of an extended period of support with this personalized attention to what the family is needing. Um, and sometimes that means you're a bit of a kind of a house manager where um, sometimes you, right away, if there's family members that are just not sure about your presence, you, you maybe act more of like kind of a, a meal planner. Or um, you're coordinating, you know, when the spouse can, can get a massage. Or you're just sort of like keeping a pulse on the house. Like if there's somebody there that, there that wants you and that welcomes you in as far as a doula goes, that's great. But sometimes it, it takes a little time. So really for a family to get comfortable and other times you step right in and they basically said like, Oh my gosh, where have you been all my life? Mm-hmm. Um, but in that first phase, we talk about uh, in an ideal world, where does this loved one want to be when they're actively dying? You know, do they, do they want to be home? And what, what will that environment look like? Do they, do they want to have a certain smell? Do they want to have a particular, sound going on, would they like to be read to? Do they want their representatives from their church choir to come in and sing? Um, Do they want their body to be washed? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Questions about how many visitors they might want to have or if they know that, and and they i say if they know, they might have feelings initially What they project how they'll feel when they're dying and those can completely go out the window. Mm -hmm. And they might just say for that whole plan, um, I just need to know that I'm that I'm feeling comfort and that um, I've already said what I need to be you know, need to say and I'm not holding on for anybody else. But if there's if they have direct ideas about who they're wanting to be in, in that space, it's really helpful. So me myself as a doula that I know that the spouse is staying up all night coordinating when the aunt is coming in, that I can do some of that work. So really you're wanting the care provider To be more of um, of a a family member or a best friend or a a partner versus having to be that care provider in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I
0: love that you talked about just real specifics like what do they want around them from sounds and smells and even people who's their inner circle who's you know and at Mm -hmm. what level, all of those Mm -hmm. things are so important and so often overlooked, I think, okay. um, in terms of the conversation. And I, I just think it's just critical, um, mm-hmm. for people to, to go into, uh, and some people may think, well, you know, why would I need to know that? And it's like, cause it's all about comfort mm-hmm. and, you know, I all know. of these different aspects of our senses come into play with that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when people are in trauma and fear and denial, you know, they, they forget, what creates comfort for themselves. And that's a really mm-hmm. good thing to know, too. <laughs> you
2: know? Right, yeah. And sometimes it, the comfort is not even for the person who's dying. I mean, they they might have, maybe they've been bedbound and they really have not um, woken up in a, in a few weeks and they know that there's maybe not many more days to go. Um, mm-hmm. Then my job is a little bit more about, let's say there's sort of one family member that's the main caregiver and we all know that there's family dynamics in each in each family and for that loved one to know or i'm sorry that for that caregiver to know that if they step away from this room in a a facility where their let's say father is at and that they're nervous so that something's going to happen like that another sibling's going to come in and maybe just breakdown, or if there is, you know, a friend that might show up that will say something that they're afraid that it's just going to change energy. Well, then we discuss, okay, how, how can we work through that? And how can we communicate to others visiting that this is what the wishes are with entering the room, that, that mm-hmm. Gloria would like you to take your shoes off, say a prayer of gratitude, take a deep breath, and, and then please enter the room. Maybe even write Something down in the memory book aside from mom from mom's bed, or um, you know, obviously there's not obviously maybe not everybody knows, but um, hearing is often the last to go. So having conversations with the friend who's dying, but maybe taking all of the the details about um, medication and about things that are, you know, stressors outside of the room. So it really continues to be a sacred space and one that Mm -hmm. represents this individual's life. Yeah, I love
0: that. I love that. Now, you said that there were kind of three steps in the care plan, and I think we kind of got to the first one, but maybe they were meshed together and I didn't break them out. So I have to.
2: Yeah, the first one is really kind of that three to one month before an expected death. Where we're getting the, the vigil plan ready, um, we talk about <clears throat> what the family's involvement might be. Um, it's really it's a time for um, a doula to make sure the choices um, around actively dying have been discussed and um, and that people have an understanding of, of what um, also these signs and symptoms look like during that time of how the body is shutting down. Um, So it's sort of, it's in that preparation. Sometimes there's enough time to create a bit of a legacy. If that means um, I'll dive into that more, as I said, but that there's some audio recording or there's a memory book um, or even there's, I can help loved ones write sort of their heart will letters. So if there's letters to be written to grandchildren or family members, friends um, that we can have time to to sort that out and I can write it out for the individuals um, that can be given at later time or even just what, what they want their last thoughts to be, to, how they want they, them to be communicated and what they want to say to others that maybe that is something that will be a part of their life celebration or maybe that's just what they need to get off their chest before continuing to um, more of the actively dying, so it's really getting in touch and making sure that um, the both the family members and the loved one are feeling like they they have said their piece about what they're wanting at the end and how um, how they've how they've viewed their their life and um, and the legacy that they're leaving behind. So the second phase is truly about the the vigil and the actively dying support so the doula's main focus is to carry out the plan that the loved one and caregiver created in ways that support their vision. Um, It can last, a vigil can last anywhere from two to six days. It can be a week or longer or just 24 hours. And again, a doula continues to share the signs and symptoms um, that the body is going through. Uh, We, we also, I didn't talk about this very much in phase one, but we can do guided imagery and healing touch, um, I've been trained in healing touch. So that's something that it's just nice to have in my back pocket if it's something where um, a family member or the loved one is feeling that they need to um, remove some of that energy and allow um, for that time for them to um, move into their next end of life for as far as the last few few days go. We also continue to um, work on rituals or ceremony with the family if it's something that they're needing. And, a doula can be present for all of it. A doula can be present for the death, if that's important. I I have to say it feels like often when I've been hired a family will say, "No, we we want you around for the death." Um and the hope really is that you give a, the family enough tools where they don't necessarily need me. I'm a phone call away or I can I can show up right after death if if it happens suddenly or or if they want to have a doula there the beauty is that in this community there's enough doulas that are trained now that we can, I can have a doula backup. Let's say I reached my max of 10 hours and I need to go crash and there might be a night a night end of life doula for a night shift. Um, so that's something that, again, it can shift. Um, they can have a plan and um, and someone can pass much more soon than we anticipated. And so we speed things up with how I can help them. Um and then the, the third phase is really um, – well, just to step back, actually. The, the last part of the second phase, I'd say depending on what the family is wanting, some of the most beautiful moments I've seen is um, I I might show up right after death if it's something that they didn't necessarily need me there. And we um, – I, I guide them through a simple washing the body ritual where um, they – there might be singing or crying or laughter and – um, and not necessarily washing every inch of um, their loved one's body, but maybe it's their face and hands and feet and talking about what those body parts gave to their lives, be it you know, their fingers of all the many minutes of sewing dresses um, for their grandchildren or their children, or their you know, someone's feet who stood next to the soccer field for years or their brain for being, Um, an incredible principle, you know, you really have a time to honor that spirit that some believe are still in the room and whatever your beliefs are, it's, it's both for the loved one to, to know if they are lingering, that, that there's, they're being held and also um, to be, to honor again and to be present um, for those feelings that are sometimes um, just so often so raw for the family members that have just experienced their loved one dying. So that's a really beautiful um, ritual and ceremony that we can it can be very personal too it can you can use the same flower um, like a certain flower that might be the on um, the loved one's favorite scent or certain oils so um, that 's something that that we can facilitate as well as bodies that are wanting to be um, at home for more than a few hours you know there's really there's no law that says in Minnesota that you need to, a body needs to be removed it's it's three days that you can have a body on ice. So, depending on what you're wanting, people sometimes have full on parties the 24 hours after their loved one has died with people visiting, and that really um, opens up an opportunity for people to continue to celebrate this person's life together. Okay. Um, and then the third phase is after death, where I help to reprocess and provide any grief support that's needed. So, depending on the scenario, sometimes I meet with a client a week after, sometimes it's three to six weeks after their loved one has passed. And you really begin to um, reprocess what the last few months look like um, or looked like doulas often share their impressions of what the visual and moments that the family might not have noticed um, were about. I think there's all these little nuances and beautiful signs that um, you don't want to interrupt the process. And so for, you, for, for a doula just to take notes and let it all happen naturally, um, it's, it's lovely for a family to, to discuss um, what, is, what were some of the things that a doula noticed. Um, and we might continue to use imagery or um, we can even write letters of forgiveness or um, do some legacy work with families depending on what their needs are. Or, you know, you can, if you know that they're needing more than what you offer, you can provide them with contacts um, for grief, additional grief support, or even um, contacts for mediums that if they're really wanting to get in touch with their loved one, if there was more to say, you know, we advise waiting at least a month or so for that. But it's it's something that can be really helpful knowing that they still, if there were unfinished business. And sometimes it's literally writing out thoughts and wishes um and and burning them outside their back patio together um but continuing to hold space for this for mm-hmm. families um oh. yeah so and, and that's really i mean a lot of people are like what does this mean holding space um and, you know it, it it's kind of, it's our ultimate goal to create the safe environment where Dying in their families can express themselves and feel their emotions, and work through issues with authenticity, authenticity, and encourage. Um, so that's something that I would say holding space means to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and when we beg- when we have this rapport with the clients, the hope is that the loved ones um, can just trust our you know, our non judgmental approach care and be vulnerable with us uh, mm-hmm. so we're not we don't necessarily we're not trying to change the situation but it's almost finding kind of this this new breath that um, families can can be using when they're going into this time in their lives
0: okay wonderful gosh you've given us such great information i can't believe we. Um, only have, you know, about 15 minutes left already. Um, I, I do want to touch on, because there was a beautiful article um, written about your mom and her choice in terms of, of end of life. Can you tell people a little bit about that? And, of course, you were mentioned in that as well. Um, mm-hmm. Just that, that journey of, of making choice. Mm-hmm.
2: Of course. Um so when I took the uh, speaking, um, speaking of Dying workshop four years ago, one of the books on the list of, recom- of recommend- recommended reading was called Choosing to Die by Phyllis Schrackner. and you can pull that up online. Um, and it was really new to me, this idea that Phyllis explains. She shares her story, which is that her spouse, is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I believe he had lost his first wife to Alzheimer's and he was devastated. And, um, and they thought, how are we going to go about this? As many people might know that um, death with dignity is not something that is an option for Alzheimer's because to use death with dignity, which is not legal in the state, but think about 14 or 15 other states in the country, um, you have to be um, have a doctor's note basically saying that you will be dying most likely in the next six months. Um, so that's something. And and you also have to know, more importantly, really, is that the person who has the disease is <clears throat> can cognitively say, yes, I want to take the death with dignity drug. And mm-hmm. anybody with Alzheimer's cognitively will not be able to make any kind of decision like that if a doctor foresees their death in six months from that time. So – Death with Dignity is not an option. Alan and Phyllis heard about VSED, um, and VSED is Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. Um, it is, it's an effective way to hasten death by fasting from food and water, ultimately. Um, and when I read this book, I thought, oh, gosh, this is you know, after my uncle had died. But I thought, you know, Mom might want to know about this option, so I handed her the book and she used to be an, an avid reader. She doesn't read very much anymore. But she said, No question, if I have Alzheimer's, which I think she kind of had a feeling she did a few years before she was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, This is how I this is how I want to die. She had seen her brother really go through as many do, not all, but his he had Louis bodies and um his his dementia, he was one of those really active physical um humans that he, there wasn't a lot of calmness to his dementia, and he just fought it. And there was such sadness that we would um, witness and be a part of. And it just it was not you know it wasn't how my uncle would have ever wanted to go um, mm-hmm. for you know a good two years, if not three years, at the end of his life. Um, and so right now, so that was about two and a half years ago that Visa has been that mom has been diagnosed, and Visa has been a part of the conversation. Um, so right away we um, met with her health care provider and the the hospice team and said, this is our hope, you know, this is something that you could support. Um, And they were, they were on, they were on board. Um, You know, it's, you don't necessarily, um, you don't need to be terminally ill um, to use VSED. Um, It's not required for an individual to have that, um, but, it, it does help for medical or other support um, to provide comfort and care at the end. I any story that I've read, it really makes sense if you can to have hospice on board and then have private care because it's something where, yes, people decide to stop eating and drinking on their own and they don't necessarily call it VSED, but um, if it's something where, I mean, at this point, mom knows in the back of her mind. Okay, I um, just to back up, we we made this kind of massive list um, of things that if she could no longer do, she would be closer to starting the said process. And so that list has become a little bit smaller. I mean, you know, she can no longer play music or play the bell. She doesn't drive. She has a hard time using her phone. She doesn't cook. But she still is um, presently um, like an active participant with her community and her friends. And um, she has, highs and lows for sure. And travel is not easy. And, you know, her spouse helps her with clothes and, and, but she still can be alone for a period of time at home um, without kind of getting worried. Her anxiety is not too high. Um, And, but she, she can't really be involved in conversations for too long. And my mom is a talker and she, she wants to be in the conversation. And so for my mom, when that continues to slow down and when she no longer wants to go out to dinner or have walks around the lake, then we will know. It's really my, my role, my sister's role, um, uh, my mom's husband's role, to keep noticing how you know the window of mom being able to start, said, because she has to be the one that, that says, I want to start. And once we start, if she asks for food and drink, we have to provide it to her. So we want to be able to honor her wish by ultimately – um, catching her at a time where she understands why she started V said and why she continues to stay on it. So, with that in mind, um, I will. I've recorded videos of her and statements of her stating that why she wants to use the said process is on her five wishes. It's on another signed document, um, but I'll re- I'll record another short video right before we start the process that will remind mom if she does ask and gets confused why this process is started. Which I. That could happen. You never know. It's never a Mm -hmm. guarantee um, that she'll say she'll have the opportunity to say, "Oh, that's right. That's why I'm doing it." No, I I don't want any water. Um, Or she'll say, "That's right. Screw it. (laughs) I I don't want (laughs) to do this anymore. I I I I love life too much. I'm not ready." Um, Mm -hmm. But we'll see. We we can only do so much to prepare. But we've um, right now we're kind of in this phase where one of the most challenging parts is that my mom loves a good party and she loves to see friends. Um, so she definitely wants to have some kind of gathering before she dies, but it's a little bit of that like, okay, not knowing if it's going to be a year from now or six months from now, do we do something small, large, inside, outside. So that it's it mom was so touched by the fact that this article was in, you know, a fairly large newspaper in the twin cities. Um, so people can learn about Options and um, that's so important to her, um, but it also just brings up the attention around what's going on even more. So it, it it's challenging.
0: Hmm. Oh yeah, I can I can only imagine. Um, oh, gosh, we've covered so much ground here, and you know, but I think it's good for people to look at these options and consider. I mean, plans can always change later on down the road, like you said, if if someone changes their mind. You know, it's it's about them and and what they want in the moment, and it's hard to project for a lot of people what they what their choices are going to be when when the the door of death is that close. And so, you know, I know I've made comments that you know, if I get cancer, I probably won't do. I'll probably choose not to do treatment Um, just Mm -hmm. because I see so many people struggle, and I'd rather have quality of life as long as I can. And, um, you know, but I could, you know, I get that diagnosis and I might totally change my mind. You know, it's, right. it's, hard, it's hard to say. Um, we do have a caller on the line. Let me just see. Um, sometimes people just call in to listen, too. But let sure. me check. Sure, sure. I think th- I think okay. this is Kate. Kate, um, this is Lori. Are you there?
1: I am listening.
0: You are I am listening. listening. Well, this I It's very interesting yeah do do you have any questions at all we've we've got a few minutes left and i I just wanted to um pull you in in case you had a question or comment
1: oh um i've ne- i've never heard of a, a a doula uh working with older people. I always thought that a doula helps deliver babies. And uh-huh. uh, so this is very interesting to me that the, all the subjects that you know Lori has covered, um, I've never heard it. I, I mean, I I know it, but then I've never heard it from a doula. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. what, are there many kinds of doulas out there other than the ones that are midwives or whatever uh, that they do?
2: You know, from what I know, the doulas that I that I have seen um in this mm-hmm. country there there are birth doulas and death doulas so we're really it it is um it's we're doing very similar things with with families as far as um making this really one of the most in, um impactful moments in people's lives their death and their birth um mm-hmm. something where it is it is a it's an honor to for this person who's being involved to, that—that sure. that is the, the pregnant woman or the person who's dying, to have control yeah. and to have a say about what they're wanting. And it's just to give families extra support in either way. It's a Greek word, dueling, mm-hmm. um and it means giving mm-hmm. support. Um, but mm-hmm. it is, you know, the I have to say the Minnesota Death Collaborative started about three years ago. And if you wanted to check out a list of all different kind of death doulas that mm-hmm. give specifics on... Um, what our specialties are. I encourage anyone just to Google Minnesota Death Collaborative. We have um, monthly presentations that um, are about anything from writing obituaries to green burials to VSED. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my gut and hope is similar to birth doulas 20 years ago when those that name started coming around. Deaf doula sure. will become a little bit more comfortable. And also, just a reminder, mm-hmm. I mean, these are roles that for hundreds of years people were doing naturally, and there was not a name for it necessarily because it really de- – yeah. birth doulas aren't, aren't midwives. They're not delivering babies. They're supporting midwives. And mm-hmm. um, like deaf doulas, we're not, we're not doing the medical um, – or you know, like birth doulas, we're not the medical side of it. Um, that, that would be hospice. Um, as far as, you know, any kind of medication and and such. But um, for both, it's truly, I think, because of, you know, the beauty and the difficultness of um, our healthcare world in the 40s and 50s was that, you know, people were, death was changing. It was, people were coming back from the war and they were, um, their bodies were needing to be sterile for long enough so people could see them. So, you know, bodies weren't being buried right away and they really weren't being honored. And you know, in in the, the capacity of, A family being with a body, Um, and at the same time, um, there was just this, like all of these incredible um, (sighs) operations and um, treatments were were being studied for years and years and years, and um, and people's lives were continuing to extend longer than they would a hundred years ago. That said, sometimes people forget that they don't have to continue to use all of these options at the end. So I think that is also an, a reason why death doulas came to be um, to discuss that because before um, death doulas that, because it, there wasn't really enough, a death, a death doula, it was um, maybe a wife's best friend that would come and prepare, you know, the water that a body would be washed at or would talk about, you know, have conversations around death. I mean, I think for years, there were young children that would be around death more than birth and now it's a little bit opposite. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really kind of, yeah, I mean, I do think that that in certain ways there's just kind of this resurgence and a bit of a groundswell around the end of life community. Um, Mm -hmm. It's there's just, there seems to be this gap um, in honoring those at the end of their path. And so I think People are needing to be reminded of how to companion at death, and that's a big part of it. Exactly. Uh, no, Wendy, I want to. I've seen I
1: wonder- uh, children. I you, sorry, Laurie, just one, just one second, okay? Okay. And I'm going to sign up. I've seen uh, little children going to uh, visitations here, and uh, I was like, well, the, the kids are so little, you know? Why do you? Bring kids to visitations. Is that a good thing for the kid, or is that not quite a good thing? Because back home, uh, the, the wake was in a house mm-hmm. normally. Though mm-hmm. in those days, you know, I haven't been home in thirty years. Um, and then so we know that somebody is dead and somebody is in that casket, but here. Um, I don't know why. When I come here, it's, it's a different thing. When I see kids coming to the visitation and look in the casket and run around, and I, I always thought that, don't you think that the kids are too young? But actually, what is too young to, to, you know, to go to a visitation when in my culture they could go, they could see it at home, you know? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it seems like there is a difference somehow.
2: Right, right. Um, it's a longer discussion for sure, but I do believe that, um, it's such a personal choice, but I hear mm-hmm. more regrets of children that didn't go to their grandparents' funeral and being a part of that than mm-hmm. I, I've never heard of, oh, I, 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 it's too bad that I brought my children to this. They shouldn't have seen it. It was too painful. Obviously there's, there's moments mm-hmm. where if somebody is in pain at the end or you want to honor a child, if they're just scared to see their, their father, you know, on his his last breath or, you know, on his deathbed. But I think the more that you approach it, and this is part of of, of life's journey, and that they don't have to, you know, kids, kids understand much more, I think, and can handle much more than um, what our society believes they can about death. I, I totally agree. My mom
0: used to get scolded for bringing us, and her friends would say they're too young. <laughs> and she's like, they're not too young to see a birth and to celebrate a birth. They should never be too young to celebrate a death and to honor a loved one. And so she was very, very adamant about that. But we do need to wrap up here. And I want to make sure that, yeah. um, that Wendy, that we get your contact information out to people. So do you sure. want
2: to give out your,
0: your website and contact?
2: Yep. My my contact, my website, it's my chemette, um M-Y, M as a mother, Y, C-H as in Harry, E, M as in mother, I as in igloo, N as in com. My Chimad, I know it's kind of a funny word. It's pathways in French. Um, and my phone number is 612-282-8644. My email address is wendy at um, I encourage everyone also to look at the Minnesota Death Collaborative um, for lists of other doulas and death educators and celebrants. Um, and I just, I feel so fortunate to be able to, to have this time, um, to be sharing what doulas do and just continue to provide people options, um, of how to go about this time of supporting loved ones in life. And, um, yeah, we, we're, we're here I, for the long haul. I think most doulas that start this role they probably will be doing it even in some fashion until they no longer can. I think it's just, it's in your bones. As I realized when I became a doula, it was sort of like, yep, yeah, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I think those that become doulas are, it's it's fairly intuitive and that's what you're looking for when you're considering Wonderful. a doula. Somebody I, that, I yeah.
0: do want to add in that we have the international end of life uh, doula website listed. And if you can get me the Minnesota Death Collaborative, I will add that link as well. Uh, so that sure. people have that. So thank you, everyone, so much for participating, Kate. Thanks for calling in. Really um, really appreciate this converta- conversation. We'll
1: talk
2: soon. Thanks, me. Thank, right.
0: thank you for
1: sharing. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement.